Standard Issue for All Women. Hello and welcome to episode 43 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and Alison Moyer has provided me with my new favourite terminology. More on that later. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I don't have a pension. But I do have an apocalypse survival plan, which doesn't seem so dumb post-Brexit, does it? No, it seems like a very good idea. And I'm Jen Offord, and I want Gareth Southgate to adopt me, please. Did you see the adorable hashtag, Gareth Southgate would? Just people writing in what they thought he would do, like, if I was broken down on the motorway, Gareth Southgate would come over, fill up my petrol, then take me for a burger. I had a long chat with my boxing uh, instructor, Lynn Bell, about this prior to the World Cup starting, and I said, you just know that he'd be, like, a really good teacher, like you'd want Mr Southgate like on your side. If you were like a bit of a naughty kid and you'd done something and you had to go to the headmasters, you'd want Mr Southgate to be there because he'd be like reasonable and you know he'd have your back. But Jen, Mr Southgate would be on everybody's side. That's the joy of Mr Southgate. He's lovely, isn't he? Later on, I catch up with the brilliant Mairead Enright to find out what's going on with abortion legislation in Ireland. And archaeologist Sam Leggett gives us the lowdown on great digs in what would have been Archaeology Week. They have a fallow year, but more on that later as well. Mm. And I do Disney's A Bug's Life. But first, flies and their mums, massive hot air-filled babies and dangerous tarmac. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we're hotter than the Tory meltdown. Thanks, weather. (laughs) On July 4th, which is, of course, Independence Day in the US, Therese Patricia Okumu scaled the base of the Statue of Liberty to protest the separation of families at the US-Mexico border. Good on that woman. Although, sadly, she has been arrested and charged with trespassing, disorderly conduct and interference with governmental administration. Ms Okumu was wearing a T-shirt emblazoned with the slogan Trump Care Makes Us Sick and bearing the logo of Rise and Resist, which is a non-profit organisation that's led campaigns in objection to family separation practices and is calling for the abolishment of ICE, which is the US Immigration and Customs Enforcement. As a federal order to reunite all children with their parents by July the 26th gets further behind schedule, it continues to be a horrific shitshow over at the US-Mexico border. DNA tests are now being used in an attempt to get 3,000 migrant children back to their families. But reports are coming in of utterly appalling treatment of the children under US government care. Taking information from parts of lawsuits filed by states against Trump administration, PBS NewsHour reported that a 14-month-old boy separated from immigrant parents at the border was returned after 85 days, covered with lice and had apparently not been bathed for 85 days. In a better world, this would be the undoing of an administration. Now, it's just Thursday. He's here this week, kids. Make those placards and make them good. Oh yes, just a few days until Trump arrives in the UK in a brief but unwelcome visit, rather like a fart in a lift. (laughs) The good news is, I suppose, that in London at least, anyone raising their eyes to heaven might catch sight of the huge Trump baby blimp which Sadiq Khan has given permission to fly over the city. A decision which perpetual bullbag Nigel Farage called, and I quote, the biggest insult to a sitting president ever. Which I suppose might be true, did you not count the five who were shot, the many more who were shot at, and most of what Farage himself said about Barack Obama. 
For a man who wants to live in the past, he sure knows shit about history. Hannah, you seem like the kind of woman who might have some fun facts I about do have presidential some fun facts assassination. About president assassination attempts. Obviously, four shot and killed, one shot and survived, Ronald Reagan. Several more shot at. And to, to be, if we're going to be fair to what Farage said here of the word sitting president, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt was shot at but was actually only president-elect at that point. It hit the man sitting next to him and he died. But I think possibly the best presidential assassination story has to be that of Theodore Roosevelt, who is a complicated character, Theodore Roosevelt. A lot to dislike, but actually a lot to admire. He had a really rough life. His wife and his mum died on the same day, and that was two days after his daughter was born. So, yeah, he'd had a... A pretty hard time, Crikey. but he he uh, McKinley was shot, and um, while sitting president, Theodore Roosevelt takes over and does the, the ends that term, and then does another full term, and then resigns because you're not supposed to do more than two terms. Then after a couple of years, he gets bored shitless, and he decides he actually hasn't technically done two terms. He might run again. The Republicans say you can't run for us. He starts his own party, which he calls the Bull Moose Party. I suppose if you were bored back then, there wasn't any Netflix. Or there anything. wasn't no. Yeah. He was very young. I mean, he was only in his early forties. Anyway, he decides to run again, and he's giving a speech in Milwaukee in 1912, and he's shot and hit in the chest by someone trying to assassinate him again. To be fair to Farage, which I don't like to be, he wasn't actually a sitting president at that point. Right. But um, which was what his quote was. Fucking finishes the speech. Did he die? Nope. Oh. Finishes the speech with a bullet in him. Because another half hour of speech, goes to the hospital and undergoes emergency surgery. I mean, really, bone spurs be fucking damned. That is hardcore. Isn't it? There's quite a lot of shooting going on. It's almost as if there's, it's, it's too easy to have a gun, isn't it? Oh, come on now, Jen. There's no need to take that tone. Cheer us up, Jen. Sure, why not? <laughs> Good news all round, guys. Over here... And just as I promised Hannah and Mickey last week that I was happy to step in and help. You were, was, you were primed, weren't you? Yeah, I was, I was ready to do it. Prime Minister Theresa May at the weekend announced a collective agreement between cabinet members on the UK's future relationship with the EU. Yay! Did Yay. you know when I was thinking about them all at Chequers, I just had an image of like in the hot fuzz them all just sitting around a table just telling themselves the greater good oh, so I think it's more like that scene in Labyrinth where they have a ball that's why I always imagine checkers <laughs> so the announcement followed a week of rumours that more than 20 ministers had urged Teabag not to go hard before we go home see what I did there and chill the fuck out on this nonsense of hard Brexit so Brexit means Brexit but what does Brexit mean? I, d- I don't know. I've, gi- I d- I've given up a little bit because the more I read, the less I know. I think we're all we're all very much on the, in the same boat there. Uh, keen to put Danny Dyer in his place. Teabag said ministers had agreed to create a free trade area for industrial and agricultural goods with the bloc based on a common rule book. I don't think anyone knows what those rules are yet. Presumably the rule is that we fuck everything up and everyone else just takes it and I'm sure they'll go for that. Right? It seems very reasonable. Yeah, absolutely. They also supported, and check the wording on the BBC's article here, what could amount to a combined customs territory. It could amount to. Right. So, again, not the most clear. Oh, and freedom of movement. Don't forget that cumbersome bastard. It will come to an end 
but the UK and EU citizens can continue to travel betwixt and apply to study and work in other countries on the basis of a mobility framework. Got it? Uh. So basically, in short, we might do some stuff that makes sense, but we might not, and the EU might tell us to fuck off, and the swivel-eyed loons will be pissed because we'll still be letting them in, and Remainers will be pissed because this seems like a lot of effort for a blue passport that we don't actually even want, and everyone will be pissed because our holidays will be, well, fucking expensive, until someone in about 20 years' time has the political nous to say... Is this really what we signed up for? And in the meantime, we forage the desolate wastelands for food and dignity. The greater good. If Teabag thought she would please everyone, one man who certainly wasn't pleased at all was Brexit Secretary David Davis, who promptly resigned on Monday morning. The inexplicable erstwhile cabinet member said he felt the UK was giving away too much and too easily. Quite, Dave, we are giving away our money, our citizenship, investment, research, and all for a bendier banana. Yeah, I liked the quote that David Davis said that he didn't feel he would be able to carry through this plan as smoothly. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, because everything was going so well, Dave. Uh, Apparently, apparently somebody in his office resigned with him. And Aisha uh, Hazarika, who's on in our show in Edinburgh, come along tweeted it's all gonna be jerry Maguire," <laughs> which made me laugh they had me at hello yeah. friend of the show and all-around top bird alison moyer was this week flamed on twitter for dissing flies i shit you not which is disappointing for flies because they love that well shit presumably sick of the busy bacteria carrying pricks getting in her face moyer tweeted if flies were just half stupid they'd find the open window thick ugly shits i hate them and their mothers die you twats and i am going to class that as mild given how much cat food i've had to throw away over the past couple of weeks as if there's not enough happening in the world to get hacked off about fly loving fuckwits piled on moyer Jesus, said Joe Avery, literally quivering with disappointment. The small things are so important to look after, and they do so much. You're not wrong, Joe. Flies are suspected of transmitting 65 diseases to humans, including typhoid and dysteria. Yum. Martin Hughes Games went straight to patronising. What an astonishingly ignorant tweet, he said, presumably pacing his bedroom, depositing little bits of poop with each step, like a fly does. Might be good to think a little before tweeting this, mm. Insects are baseline critical for survival of so much other life. He's right, of course, but so is Moyet. Flies are twats and wasps are cunts. Happy to help. Moyet, clearly chastened by the whole debacle, offered her bum potatoes as apology. Mm. What's a bum potato? It's poo, Jen. Oh. Bum spuds. Oh. Bum potatoes is now my new favourite thing but like to say not just in general and it's many happy returns to the nhs which celebrated its 70th birthday last week implemented by labor politician nye bevan in 1948 after world war ii revealed we were all well and particularly the working class a bit fucked the nhs has arguably become the uk's adopted religion of choice The old bird rumbles on, inspiring musicians and baffling Americans, not least because she quite rightly inspired a segment of the 2012 Olympic opening ceremony. But just what sort of state is she in? Well, at just five months older than my mum, the NHS is in considerably worse nick, it seems. Despite our free, in inverted commas, healthcare, because, um, you know, we do pay taxes for this shit, it's not really free, is it? The UK is ranked 23rd in the world in terms of access and quality of healthcare. Since the 2009-10 financial year, 
spending on the NHS has increased by less than £13 billion, which might sound like a lot, but according to charity The King's Fund, in real terms, the budget has only increased by 11.3% over that eight-year period, which is far less than the 4% annual increase required as estimated by the Office of Budget Responsibility. So what can you do? Find your local Save Our NHS campaign and protest? Pay your taxes? Lobby government to make everyone else, including their mates, pay their taxes? Vote for politicians who actually give two shits about saving it? The NHS, which provides employment as well as treatment for huge numbers and generates its own revenue and taxation, doesn't need to be looked at as just a financial conundrum. And for all its faults, we are, of course, enormously lucky to have it. Britain continues to be full-on sweaty O'Betty, but whatever discomfort or indignity you might have suffered this week, it's unlikely it topped that of the man who sank thigh-deep into melted tarmac in Newcastle. What? You heard me. The unidentified 24-year-old was saved by firefighters and, according to a tweet, his granddad's Doc Martins. Which seems like a bizarre choice of footwear for a heatwave, but there you have it. Sartorial choices count, people. Who knew? The fire service spokesperson added, During the good weather, please be mindful that things like this can happen. Be more aware when you're walking around. Which means that as well as worrying about sunburn, sunstroke, dehydration, old people, young people, pets, wildlife, gardens, cars, and whatever other myriad stuff we also have to do with our time, we now need to stay alert to the possibility that the ground could literally open up and swallow our limbs. And presumably our young people, pets, wildlife and old people, especially if we're all wearing their boots. I don't like it. Oh my God, I'm scared. Mm. I'm scared to go out. Do you fancy some good news? Yeah. Yeah. Admittedly, it is tainted by patriarchal bullshit, but still. Women in Iran have been posting videos of themselves dancing online in solidarity with arrested teenager Maida Hojabri. Maida had gathered thousands of followers on Instagram thanks to her videos of her dancing to Iranian and Western pop music, which she filmed at home and without the mandatory headscarf or hijab that women in Iran are meant to wear in public. Several other dancers have been arrested in the past few weeks as well. Yeah, yeah, I know I said good news. But that comes courtesy of the bold women doing exactly what Maida did in protest of her arrest and tagging their videos with what translates as dance to freedom and dancing is not a crime. Well, it certainly shouldn't be. Absolutely not. Although some of my moves are dangerous, guys. I'm going to put that out. My moves are criminal. (laughs) More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we cast our eye over history and wonder if there were actually any women back then. And by then, I'm talking World War II, in which women played a massive part including a group of high-flying birds known to their supporters as the Famous Five, who braved the odds and piloted planes to get them to the RAF during the Battle of Britain. Why do they need supporters, I hear you ask? Well, turns out that Benedetta Willis, Jackie Mogridge, Joan Hughes, Freydis Leaf and Jean Bird are being largely forgotten during this week's celebrations that mark the centenary of the RAF being founded, despite their heroics and despite them being the first women to get their Royal Air Force wings. Candy Atkins, the daughter of Jackie Mogridge, was understandably pissed off during a recent visit to the RAF Museum in Hendon when she was told there was no need for any material about her mother because there was already, and I quote, a few women died around here and there. (laughs) The RAF has counted that women have featured heavily in the RAF 100 campaign and pointed to Group Captain Anne-Marie Horton's role as parade commander on July the 10th. I wonder if that one woman is considered dotted there or here. Yeah, and it's bullshit, isn't it? It's bullshit. You should have a look at Greg Jenner's tweet about this because 
some of the responses to it are, yeah. One man is very, not Greg, but one man responding to him is very unconvinced by facts and evidence. Yeah, yeah, and just women in general. Just women getting ideas above their station and earning wings and actually earning those wings yeah. the, the correct way. He refuses to believe that happened. Swats, swats. Hello, Mickey here. In recent months, significant strides previously thought impossible have been made when it comes to the decriminalisation of abortion. Over in Ireland at the end of May, there was a resounding yes to the referendum on whether to remove the Eighth Amendment from the Constitution. Well done, that country. And Argentina looks pretty set to make abortion legal there. There's also happenings over in the Isle of Man. And I dropped the awesome Stephanie Kelsey from the Campaign for Abortion Law Modernisation in the Isle of Man. A little message to see how they were getting on. And bless her, she got back to me. She said, happy to report that our bill is progressing nicely. We have a bishop as an unelected member of our government and he tried to put in some amendments to restrict the bill. But no other member of the government have seconded his amendment, so he utterly failed. And the headlines in the newspapers that day were, today is a good day for the women of the Isle of Man. How lovely is that to hear? The bill has now been successfully voted through all the stages of the second chamber and therefore won't face any more amendments. Uh, the government is just about to go on its summer break, but it is looking likely that the bill will become law in October or November. Decriminalisation, buffer zones, 40 meets on demand and all. Well, I was proper chuffed to hear that and I'm sure you are all too. We also wanted to know what was going on in Ireland and how they were getting along with sorting out the legislation that means that abortion will actually be legal. And so I called the excellent Mairead Enright, Senior Lecturer of Law at Birmingham University and also a key member of Lawyers for Choice who were out there on the streets campaigning for a yes vote. So, first question, how did you feel when the exit polls came in on May the 25th, Mairead? Fantastic, I think. There was a, a gang of us friends who had been involved in campaigning on the amendment in various ways for a number of years and we went out for dinner together in Dublin city centre just to kind of be together and you know take our minds off the weight and so on and the polls actually closed at 10 and we had thought that an exit poll would come out at 11 but actually it came out within minutes of the official voting ending. I think those polls were actually slightly more generous than the, the eventual result but obviously that was wonderful it was just almost unbelievable that the, that the result was so positive. Yeah we kind of cheered and hugged and danced and roared and uh, celebrated and went up to Together for Yes headquarters to hang out with everybody and say thank you to them. And I don't know, it was just kind of, it sounds naive, but genuinely the the city felt different. You know, when you walked out into the street, it really felt like something had shifted or something had, like a weight had been lifted in some way. And uh, yeah, it was wonderful. I, I highly recommend it to <laughs> anybody. Uh, <laughs> change the constitution, it's great. <laughs> so, yeah. I think a lot of people probably outside of Ireland think, oh, well, they've won, that's it, it's done now, but there is still a long way to go. So is it right that yeah. abortion legislation comes before Parliament this month, which is July, yeah? Yeah, so the first thing, there's a, well, there's a bit of an obstacle, which is that, so the Eighth Amendment is actually still in the Constitution. So three different litigants have taken high court cases to challenge uh, the referendum process itself in various ways. And none of those challenges are expected to succeed, but they still have to be heard in the courts. One person has dropped his claim, but two remain. 
they will have to be heard. I think they're being heard at the moment. And it's not until they have kind of had their say that the president will be able to sign the Eighth Amendment. So even today in the Irish Times, there was a report of a woman who needed a termination very close actually to the date of the referendum itself. She she found out that her fetus had a fatal anomaly and her own health was so poor that she was unable to travel. And so she had to go through the process of waiting until, until her doctors were agreed that her life was at risk and they could intervene under our current legislation, the Protection of Life During Pregnancy Act. So at the moment, you still can't get a legal abortion in Ireland and women are still travelling. The Department of Health and so on obviously have and the Attorney General have been working on draft legislation and the hope is that that will still be introduced in Parliament at some point this month. They were saying the 11th or 12th of July but that might be delayed but it does look like the proper parliamentary debates and so on won't take place until September. But the Minister for Health is still kind of confident that we're still looking at introducing abortion services in January. But at the moment, nothing has changed. Things are kind of on hold. We're in suspension. Are you involved in the legal process in discussing the legislation? Oh my goodness, no, no, no. Not formally. Obviously, I would be offering support to different groups and to, and to different people. But this, you know, the formal work of legislative drafting is done by the Attorney General, by the you know, parliamentary draftsmen and so on. Obviously, lawyers for choice and so on will be doing different things to support activist groups who want to have input. As the legislation is being debated, we would expect that different activist legislators will be proposing amendments to aspects of the legislation. And that, you know, that's the point at which activists and, and opposition political parties and so on can have their say. And I would be, you know, working informally with a few people in that in that respect. But I mean, uh, we would hope, you know, that having been working on these issues for at least six years and having done a lot of work to try and, as it was, enhance public and political understanding of what good abortion law looks like, we would hope we might have had an indirect effect, but a direct effect uh, much less so. What are the big battles or barriers that the legislation is likely to face? In all honesty, the advantage of the result in the referendum is that in terms of anti-abortion opposition, although we would expect quite some time will be spent in Parliament hearing that viewpoint, it's unlikely to have an impact on the content of the legislation. Um, and, you know, opposite the major opposition parties and so on have said that they're not going to do anything to slow down the legislation's uh, progress. So there is kind of general mainstream agreement on par- in Parliament now that the legislation that was drafted and published in advance of the referendum kind of has to go through. Is that the one that's up to 12 weeks? Yes, so 12 weeks, and then after 12 weeks, it would be fatal fetal abnormality, serious risk to health and risk to life, um, because the expectation is that rape will by and large be dealt with within the the 12 weeks um, period. So in terms of obstacles, I don't see those grounds, if you like, were put to the people in the referendum. And even though the referendum wasn't a direct vote on that legislation, you know, that was the substance of a lot of the discussion mm-hmm. um, at the time. And so I don't see, for example, any liberalisation of that 12 weeks to 14 weeks or 22 weeks or whatever happening. And certainly the minister has suggested that he will make some amendments even to that draft as they become necessary. So, for example, during the referendum campaign, an organisation called the Centre for Bioethical Reform were doing a sort of tour of the country and displaying these enormous graphic images of dismembered fetuses. Yeah, and, I saw a um, few of those in Dublin, they're, they're horrific. Yeah, and they're still there. And they're displaying those images, for example, outside maternity hospitals because 
later term abortions, it's expected, will be carried out in maternity hospitals. And so the Minister for Health accepts that we are going to need, similar actually to, you know, the issue that's come up in Ealing and other places lately, we're going to need exclusion zones effectively in places where abortions are known to be performed. So maternity hospitals, obviously, and um, I mean, the expectation is that up to 12 weeks, women will be able to get an abortion from their GP, you know, pills and so on from their yeah. GP. And if you think of the better known women's health services like Well Woman or the Irish Family Planning, association, their buildings would be at risk, we imagine, from similar protests. And so the legislation is going to, it's expected, is going to deal with that. So balancing, if you want to frame it that way, balancing sort of tolerance for those kinds of protests with an appreciation of the effects that clinic protests have um, on women who are trying to access what will be a legal, perfectly legal health service at a you know at a time of, of vulnerability. So there will be some changes made to the legislation, which are positive changes, I think, to kind of reflect that deeper understanding of what an accessible healthcare service would look like. Okay, let's do best case scenario. What can we hope mm-hmm. for? I think the grounds will be as are, as were discussed coming up to the referendum. So 12 weeks and then very restrictive grounds thereafter. I think that we are going to realise pretty quickly that that is too strict. It's pretty obvious. I mean, so the abortion support network, even if we pass legislation, they anticipate that three to 400 people will still need to travel every year because um, after 12 weeks, there will be circumstances that aren't covered. So let's say, for example, somebody who doesn't realise they're pregnant until the 10th or 11th week or somebody who has needed to conceal a pregnancy or is unable to make arrangements because they're in a controlling relationship, right? So they get to 13 or 14 or 15 weeks. Are they expected to travel? Are they expected to use pills, which you know, are riskier at that stage. Yeah. And even though they would no longer be criminalised, wouldn't be, you know, wouldn't be a regular way to have an abortion, let's say a regulated way. There are also concerns around, for example, the disability ground was something that was, I wouldn't say cautiously treated as much as avoided, because the idea of a disability ground for abortion was very much a centrepiece of the anti-abortion, uh, the no vote campaign during the referendum. Um, and the government was very keen to avoid any suggestion that you would be permitted to terminate pregnancy in Ireland on grounds of disability, um, which, of course, is that position is is compatible with international human rights law and so on. Um, the problem is, though, that they made no distinction between disability in general and the kinds of condition where, let's say, it's not a fatal fetal abnormality, so that a child will be born alive and won't die in the immediate aftermath of birth, but may live for a year or two years in extreme pain or with a very, very low quality of life indeed. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, no, there's so parents in that position, for example, which, which is, you know, and that position, which is very, very similar in many ways, though obviously not identical to the fatal fetal anomaly um, sort of position, those people will still have to travel and, you know, will undergo the same kinds of pattern of grief and expense and isolation and so on that people found really persuasive when they were thinking about fatal fetal anomaly in the run-up uh, to the referendum. So those are just kind of two examples of places where I think it will become apparent that the legislation is too restrictive. But, you know, if you had asked me three years ago whether we would get anything like this as our legislation you know, I would have been very sceptical. I think we were, we were, we all think that 12 weeks is significant progress that we would have 
struggle to imagine passing even a handful of years ago. So even though the, the eye is very much on the prize of sort of free, safe, legal abortion, you know, abortion as normalised, I suppose I'm still in referendum mode and that I'm kind of <laughs> cautious about how to phrase things, right? So, but I, w- I would say without, without unnecessary restrictions, you know, that's what we're aiming for when we talk about when we talk about free, safe, legal, that any time limit would reflect women's experience and would reflect women's needs. So I'm, I'm not saying that this legislation is ideal. I suppose, but but it's but it's good, right? It's it's a solid victory. You know, three years ago would have been grounds heavy, and lots of hoops to jump through in order to access an abortion. So, you know, our worst nightmare would have been something like an amendment to the Protection of Life During Pregnancy Act where you would still have to see multiple doctors and most women would be refused, right? So we were expecting something much more complex and much less women-centred than what we've actually got. I think the main sort of problem won't necessarily be the text of the legislation itself, but embedding a meaningful abortion service into a medical system where abortion or legal abortion has not been known before. You know, my concerns would be around cultures of medical conservatism, um, which might mean that women who are legally entitled to an abortion can't access one in practice. So it would be more about the the interpretation of the legislation, the making it effective, um, building cultures of care around it. Those would be the, the kind of obstacles as I would see them. And there's going to be a 72-hour cool-off period, is that right? There is, yeah. So you will... Um, it, uh, now, the 72-hour cool-off period only applies to the 12 weeks. But okay. yeah, you, you would go, you would see your doctor. Your doctor would certify that your pregnancy... Would date your pregnancy, basically. Your doctor wouldn't have any role in questioning you as to your reasons or evaluating your reasons. Um, and then once you had been certified as entitled uh, to the termination you would have to undergo the 72-hour waiting period and then arrangements would be made uh, for the termination. The legislation or the draft legislation isn't as clear as it could be about the doctor's obligation to make those arrangements promptly. Um, Ah. So there is possibly some scope for further delay. But yeah, the 72 hours was kind of sold as, um, yeah, as as ensuring that, um, you know, a decision wouldn't be made rashly or whatever. Um, Because you're going to wait until you've gone to the doctors to actually think about it, right? You see, this is it, right? So there was, you know, one of the more difficult um, and sort of pernicious discourses that seemed to have some sticking power, you know, on the canvassing trail and so on, was the idea that we would be making it too easy for Irish women to have abortions. And so the 72 hours is a kind of a symbolic remainder of that, you know, that we will enforce on women a period within which they have to show that they're taking their reproductive responsibilities seriously. Yeah, there's still a faint trace of misogyny there, right, in the assumption that if we don't uh, put hurdles in women's way, then use it like contraception. Something of that nature, some kind of, you know, stop and think, slow down mechanism would have been inserted into the legislation anyway. And I would rather a 72-hour waiting period than some form of compulsory counselling, for example, right. because, you know, that that could have been used in a much more stigmatising way. There's the brilliant Sarah yeah. Silverman line where she says, oh, I'm so glad about the delay because I thought I wanted an abortion. Turns out I was just thirsty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think, you know, in terms of the 72 hours, at least women will have less to think about 
in those 72 hours. You don't have to arrange or you won't, you won't have to arrange travel. You won't have to arrange accommodation. You won't have to learn how to navigate another country's health system. Um, you won't have to spend your 72 hours, hopefully, concocting a story about why you had to leave the country. So the the 72 hours is still is still very difficult. But what we are hoping is that the experience of terminating pregnancy will be wildly different and that those 72 hours will be less uncomfortable than they than they than they currently are. Mairead, thank you so yeah. much for having a chat with us and explaining what's going on. I really appreciate it. Grant. Hannah Dunleavy's Outside of the Box. Hi, Hannah here. You may remember I made a promise that I was going to do some TV once a month and it has not happened because, well, because it's, it's been busy and I'm also going to use the excuse it's been hot. But there are a couple of things that I wanted to talk about. So Mick and Jenna here, obviously. Hello. Hi. There's loads of news, but literally we've only got like 10 minutes. But there is one piece of TV news that I saw that I was quite interested in. Mick's been watching Mindhunter. I did watch the first season, yes. Yes, and it was it was good. It had promise, didn't it? Three and a half out of five. Three and a half out of five. Well, it might be getting a bit better. Okay. Because it was, as you know, created, directed by David Fincher. Now, David Fincher has taken a bit of a step back this series and he's got some other directors in. Mindhunter, if you don't know, or for Jen, is about the early days of the FBI profiling unit. It's on Netflix and it basically features a lot of the two guys from the FBI. One um, of whom is played by Jonathan Groff. 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 Jonathan, Jonathan Groff. Groff. Yeah, Jonathan Groff, who is the voice of King George III in on the Hamilton soundtrack, if anyone is interested. And also, I believe he's the guy in Frozen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There he is. Anyway, they go in and they interview a series of serial killers in prison to talk to them and to try and get inside the mind of a serial killer. And... No offence to either of the guys playing, to Jonathan Groff and the other man whose name I don't have on a piece of paper. Apologies. It is actually the serial killers that actually steal the show, in particular Cameron Britton, who is... He was amazing as Ed Kemp. Absolutely terrific as Ed Kempner. So, in the new batch of directors that are coming out, one of them is Andrew Dominic, who is really interesting film director. He makes very, very few films. In fact, he's made three. One of which is Chopper. The I fucking love Chopper. Yeah, one of which is the assassination of Jesse James by which, the coward Robert Ford, which, which is amazing. And Hannah has nagged me, gently nagged me since I've known her to watch this, so I will do. But it's like eighty-two hours long. It is tremendous. And the other one of which is Killing Me Softly, which didn't get such great reviews. Actually, I liked it. it has a really terrific cast, including James Gandolfini and Scoot McNary. It is really good. Anyway. He is on board to direct three of these episodes in a series that's about the mind of a psychopath to get a guy who's made probably the best two films about being inside the mind of a psychopath that exist is tremendously exciting. So, hooray, that should be out in December. Also, there is a date for BoJack Horseman, which is <laughs> September. Oh, yeah. now, and talk- Orange is the New Black is out on the 27th of July, I think. I believe it is. Yep. There's, in fact, Netflix has gone a bit crazy since we um, last spoke. There is Arrested Development, which we talked about briefly. They have, which is split in half that season. 
there's another bit coming also that happened to um, Unbreakable Kimmy Smith and I have feelings about both of those series which I feel might be slightly unfair to judge them on since they are both only halfway through we can get onto those but since we're talking about Bojack Horseman I thought we might start with Glow yay because Alison Brie is now I believe the appearance of Alison Brie in a series I think now is categorically the one thing that would make me watch something she's astonishingly good I mean, Trudy Campbell in Mad Men, Diane Noygan, yep. Diane Noygan in Bojack Horseman, Ruth in Glow, and Annie in Community. I mean, they are all incredible. She is incredible. Mick hasn't finished Glow, so I have to be a bit careful with this. But I really like this series a lot. I think it has a slow start. It does something that actually Mad Men did in its, I think, sixth series, in which it separates the two characters that you most enjoy watching be together and keeps them apart, which is what happened to, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched it already, which is what happens to Peggy and Don in the early sixth series. And it's kind of horrible to watch. It feels like your parents are rowing or something and you have to sit in a room with them. But it is absolutely terrific. Mickey, thoughts? I've I've just watched, um, I'm currently at the, I've just seen the experimental episode or so they go a little bit off what you were expecting. And it's just superb the characters are all super engaging the action's great the women take center stage apart from sam who i've got a terrible crush on mama i'm not more on uh, that. we were having this conversation glow has a way of taking the skeeviest looking men making them really attractive i don't know how it pulls it off i certainly shouldn't go there but man do i want to go there yeah there's another one that hannah pointed out and i was like oh, all right and i was like as soon as he appeared i text hannah oh god russell and she's like yeah yeah and i know i think a lot of credit for that has to go to alison brie alison brie does chemistry really well i mean to the degree that she has chemistry with will arnett in bojack horseman and that isn't even recorded they're not even together when they record that Stop they're recorded that. separate it's really upsetting it's it's incredible. we're all in the same room having a lovely time. I mean, Trudy Campbell was the only woman that could make Don Draper do anything that he didn't want to do because Alison Bray, she's just terrific. She's great. And on the back of Glow, I am in the midst of organising myself a little trip to learn how to wrestle for the podcast. Ooh. So that's going to be pretty exciting slash goodbye forever, everyone. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we probably mentioned that. If you don't watch Glow, it's about women wrestlers. Yeah, the glamorous ladies of wrestling. And it is, but there is loads of other great, like loads of other great performances in it. I think in the separating of Ruth and Sam in it, they've managed to let them build relationships with other characters, and other characters have been able to come forward. I think Kate Nash continues to be absolutely terrific in it, as is Brittany Young. Yeah, it's really great. Tuck in. What I would also recommend is, if you do get into Glow, and you really should, is watching the documentaries, The Real Glamorous Ladies of Wrestling, which is the documentary about the women who actually did the series in the 80s, and late 70s, early 80s, and it is an incredible watch. It's a really good documentary. But also, I think this is... The interesting thing is, this series of Glow was apparently written before hashtag me too movement became a thing and yet it still manages to feel very post me too and that is i believe a good thing indeed hannah's voice is getting more slightly staccato because she's verging on spoiler territory and she doesn't want to no i don't she is correct i think it also um really grabs hold of the issue of race in this series as well and racial stereotypes and whether or not ever playing up to them is a good thing grabs hold yeah 
Is that a wrestling oh, I, no, film? I don't know. It gets, it gets racial stereotypes in a half Nelson. That's a thing, is it? Yeah. I don't know. Grappling also. Yeah, absolute grappling. Okay, let's go back to those things that we mentioned, Arrested Development. Uh, what do you think, Mick? Did you like it? I've seen three episodes and then watched several other things instead of continuing to watch Which it. Which is an indication. Yeah, I, I have every intention of finishing it, but I was just... Uh, it felt really forced, which made me sad. I think there's something about it that they don't feel cohesive as a family unit anymore. And I that sounds a bit ridiculous because, obviously, they're not a family unit. Oh, they're certainly not cohesive family unit, as in they're a family that don't get on. But they just don't seem to spend enough time around each other. There are some feelings that I have, not just about Jeffrey Tambor, because we spoke about that the last time we talked about this, but actually, after that happened, I now have some fairly strong feelings about Jason Bateman. That's that why I, I sent you that interview where he's a prick. Yeah, that I. so I can't help but think those things have affected it as well. There are some... Buster continues to have some of the best lines in it, including describing someone as someone's son with benefits, which will never not be the funniest thing that I've ever heard um, I think that Ali Shawkat is amazing in this series they actually give her something really cracking to do and she does it really well and I know it makes me a weirdo but I do if if shipping is a thing um, as everyone seems to believe it is which is you know wanting two characters on a television programme to get together or indeed members of One Direction oh yeah FYI. okay there's not two characters that I want to see get together and be happier than Joe Bluth and Tony Wonder, which is <gasps> so weird. Uh, but Job's like the most likable character now. Job actually does something that resembles growth in this series, which is quite incredible, yeah. really, considering that they are the, the characters that never change. Michael Cera kind of weirds me out a bit now. He doesn't ever really look comfortable in it, does he? No. I think because... The season four left them all quite isolated and the good guy has always been Michael and George Michael. Yeah. But now they're not good guys either. So I just feel like there's not really anyone you can properly root for or think is going to save the family. And they're trying desperately, I think, to get Michael to be the likeable character again who brings them all together. Yeah. But I don't like him. <laughs> there's also no Oscar. And Oscar is the other kind of vaguely likeable character. Oh, yeah, of course. And no... Oh, spoiler alert, I should probably say. No Oscar and no Lucille too. <gasps> Which is... I don't know if I will watch the end of it now. Kimmy Smith, I don't know. I think maybe I watched it too quickly. I think I really piled through it in, in about two sittings. I'm going to take you on a tangent then quickly, Hannah. Do you think that is a thing? Can't, because we're in binge culture. Is it ruining some TV experiences, do you think? Or can it? Uh, well, I, I think possibly yes, because I think there is something about when you watch something and and it requires thinking about... I mean, on some TV, I'm, I'm not sure too much thought is actually required. But, yeah, I'm trying to think of a um, something that I actually watch. OK, Catastrophe is not a bad example of this, which is also filming, has apparently wrapped filming now or is wrapping filming as we speak so there's a new series of that coming. There's actually more to it than comedy. There's, there's, it's particularly the end of catastrophe. Jesus, yeah. Something happens that I think requires a bit of time to think, to think about and, and to digest and to bit. digest what happens. So to be able to move on and sort of 
then maybe if you haven't watched it and then to sit down and just pile through loads of series together you 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 sort of haven't had a chance to reflect on what it is so i think you can actually pile through some stuff too quickly yeah i'm not sure kimmy smith it just didn't and also there's characters in that and there is characters in arrested development that are irritating and you can actually become irritated with them just by the fact that they're around too much yeah. you kind of should some things should only be taken in small doses so like paracetamol and yeah <laughs> quite the bridge i believe has come to an end because i actually did manage to get my hands on uh, some preview stuff and watch it before it was on tv Mick still hasn't seen it. It has ended as in it is the end. Right. I've seen some quite quite big posters on the underground for the bridge. Yeah, I think it, it's out on DVD now, I think is what they are up for. Oh, right. Not because it's still on TV. Yeah, I don't know how I felt about the ending, I suppose. I actually thought it sort of ended on a good point when the third one ended, and I had assumed that was going to be the end. Can't talk about it too much. But yeah, I mean, fair play to them, um, and by them I mean the cast because I actually don't think the material's always that great but actually the acting is always really terrific so yay, hooray for that something else that I've watched on the previous service but I think it's probably on Beyond TV by the time we put this out but Who Do You Think You Are has an absolute cracking episode which I think might be on this week which is Olivia Coleman. oh, friend of the show friend of the show, Olivia Coleman, and she ends up going to India right at the start she says I don't like travelling and she ends up having to go to India and she uncovers a story in her family, which I think most people would find quite sweet. I mean, I don't really do sweet. But actually, it's not the story itself as so much as her reaction to the story makes it one of the most endearing things I've watched on TV in such a long time. Yeah, watch that. One last thing we want to talk about, The Staircase, which is supposed to be. is being pushed as the big crime drama of the summer. Have you seen it yet, Jen? I have not, no. Because you do like a documentary. I do like a documentary. Well, I'll put this one on your list. Yeah, I've been given some recommendations by you both. It's not new. So in fact, some of it is an When's existing it documentary. Set? The early 2000s, isn't it, when it happened? Um, yes. Yeah. And it was it, it was made as a nine-part documentary, and then there was another two parts made, and then Netflix have sort of rounded it off with bringing it up to the future. So it's not a Netflix production as such, but it is up there in its entirety, so you can watch it all. And it is really in-depth following of a case. That's why I thought you might like it, because it's sort of a bit like... OJ. The People versus OJ Simpson, in that how how forensically it looks at a case. But that said, because OJ Simpson brings up a, a lot of issues about society, and I actually don't think the staircase particularly does, to be honest. It's I think it brings up a lot of stuff about the American justice system, which is fascinating. Mm. Yeah. Really yeah. fascinating. But it doesn't have that sort of misogyny and race yeah. issues surrounding it. I mean, it's good. I can't get too excited about it because I've actually seen some of it before. So it, it doesn't feel entirely new. But it is definitely worth what the investment of the time, I think. And I'd warn people that it's pretty graphic. It is, and it does raise a couple of questions. There's some things that I still, despite that something is so forensically detailed, there's still some things that I don't really understand. Maybe, I can't really say it without spoilers, but there's still some things that maybe when you sit and watch it, you'll think what but how is that and they'll probably be the same things i think it's really interesting because i think it's, it's kind of an interesting portrait of our family in crisis as well because I think. the father has been accused of murdering the mother yes is the longer short of it mm -hmm. but yeah but there's some interesting characters in it there's some there's uh 
probably one of the most likable lawyers I think we've seen portrayed on television. Which He's is, a lovely man. Yeah. He seems like a lovely man. Yeah. Anyway, so apologies that that was all rushed, but that is something, Jen. I remembered something I've watched. What have you watched, Jen? Um, I started watching The Affair. The new series has just started. I think we are on the third episode this week. I've watched the first two. We've talked about this before. We have. I don't think you're very interested in it. I I thought it was an interesting conceit, Mm. as in it was being told from two different points of view. I just don't think that works as a long-term way to... A one-off series with a conceit like that, I think, would be tremendous, but... Mm. It gets to a point where if you're following it, you kind of need to know what is actually going on in order to follow something. But uh, I might be wrong. I will say this is I think this is series four. And I've watched, obviously, all of the rest of them. And I really, really enjoyed the first series. And I did sort of proper binge watch all of them quite quickly because for some reason Sky gave me a free box set thing for like a month. So I just went crazy. And I really enjoyed it. But I think you're right. I think it has lost a little bit of the because if you do the same thing every time like if every time her version of events is that she looked a lot more demure and his version of events is that she looked she was like dressed a lot more provocatively or whatever or like every time she thinks he's in the wrong and he thinks she started the argument and blah 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 it does yeah you can't do that forever and also I'm not sure there's any characters left to feel that much sympathy towards now but yeah, it's happening. If you, you know, if you, if you <laughs> well, that is tricky. It. You do. I think you always do need someone to to. You don't even need to empathise with them. You just have to wish them well. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, it's just like watching a football match where you don't want either team to win. I mean, which is possibly what's going to happen in the final, AJ. Eh, but um, quite possibly. <laughs> <laughs> At some point, I will be back because absolutely guaranteed is that the BBC will put out a big drama over the summer and it will absolutely fucking stink they always do summer dramas at the BBC so I'd certainly enjoy tucking into that whatever it is that that comes and I've seen an advert for Luther on telly yeah I still think it's quite a way off to be honest I I still think Luther is is a way off Um, also I was going to try and find out what was going on with Game of Thrones but it's too hot isn't it it's very hot it's too hot We're here in the beautiful gardens of Newnham College in Cambridge with PhD candidate in archaeology, Sam Leggett. Hello. 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 (laughs) And we're going to be talking about what would be archaeology week, but we're in a fallow year. It's like Mm, Glastonbury. It takes a a year off. Are you going to come back with the Rolling Bones headline? (laughs) (laughs) And we're done. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) That was great. Surely the cows don't need to recover. Why why is there a fallow year? In archaeology, well, I mean, the whole point is we're digging stuff up maybe it's just the farmers get too annoyed with us is it in case you run out of stuff to dig dig up i mean possibly you just want to make sure you've got the good stuff because occasionally there's a year where just nobody's had anything well we find it exciting but the public probably don't what was it about archaeology that drew you in in the first place basically i remember sitting in history class in high school and learning about the fact that you could actually deal with the actual remains of the past and that there were dead bodies in particular that you could learn a lot about and they took us to see at see the ice man he came around sydney and that clinched it for me it was the fact that i could use my science and my history and i didn't have to be in one hole i've got, I've got loads of things to talk to you about let's start with dorothy garrett yes. who is possibly archaeology's most famous woman mm. that said not that well known out of 
academic circles or possibly I've heard of her because I live in Cambridge and she's a woman. (laughs) So what can you tell us about her? Quite an interesting lady. She read archaeology or studied archaeology here at Newnham just before the First World War in sort of about 1912 and then became the first professor, female professor in archaeology at either Oxford or Cambridge or first female professor full stop. Am I right saying at this yeah. point women still couldn't no. even graduate from yeah, Cambridge? Yeah, so women still couldn't get a degree. You could study here, you could learn everything the men were learning but you couldn't actually graduate and for quite a long time women, if they did want to graduate, had to actually go to Trinity in Dublin. They had to travel to Ireland to get their degrees. So she was made professor at a time where women weren't given doctorates, weren't given full degrees, and so it caused a big issue in Cambridge that suddenly she was a professor, so the highest rank you could get, but had no official degrees. What was the exciting stuff that she found? Yeah, so the biggest thing that she's really well known for is discovering Neanderthal skeletons in Gibraltar, and a child's skull in particular. And she worked a lot on the Paleolithic, Neolithic, deep prehistory and particularly over in the Near East as well. She did a lot of stuff in the Levant, Turkey, Jordan, what was then Palestine, looking at people's transition from hunter-gatherers to farming and made some of the biggest discoveries over there during World War II in particular. So she kind of got free reign when the men were all off fighting the war. She is remembered well now, Mm. but contemporaneously, how was she treated by her colleagues she was seen as quite a shy mousy figure apparently quite softly spoken but with quite a wry sense of humor from all reports but she was sort of seen as somebody who i think maybe didn't rock the boat too much which is maybe why they wanted to give her the professorship although they did actually ask another newnham reader in archaeology gertrude cat and thompson first if she would like the professorship but at the time I think she was quite well regarded, although maybe just not regarded as highly as the men. They often sort of talked about Flinders Petrie and all the other big sort of silverback men of the time period. And she was kind of just let to do her to do her thing. She is being remembered now, though, mm. isn't she? Yep. Here. Yes. We've got a brand new building, which is opening, hopefully, September, October, named after um, Professor Garrett and the lab that I'm a part of in the archaeology department is named after her as well. How have things moved on since Dorothy <laughs> Garrett's time? Are you are you 50% of the workforce? Ugh. So I've been looking into this a bit because I'm surrounded by such amazing women here and I think I've kind of got a bit of a bubble in Newnham where I just think, oh, there's all this amazing women. But my undergraduate at Sydney, um, definitely that wasn't the case. And when you look at the professors and everybody who's sort of in higher ranking tiers now, it's probably less than that. It's maybe somewhere between 30 and 40%. But when you look at diggers in the field and people studying undergraduate, we're 50-50, if not more towards sort of 60-70% women, sometimes even higher. So I think at the moment our undergraduates are about 90% women here at Cambridge. But when you look at who's got the professorship titles, that's not reflected. So the women are doing all the dusting? Yeah. Right, okay, and yeah. cleaning up. Yeah, we're, we're doing all the all the work out in the field for the most part. We're doing a lot of the teaching. And I read something quite interesting about yeah. work in the field. I was having a look on a Twitter, because that's always a great place to always. catch people having yeah. a bit of a moan about <laughs> what it is they do for a living. Yep. And a lot of people saying the facilities in the field for women mm. are a bit rubbish, as in just, just basically mm-hmm. like the toilet. Yeah, yeah, it's always it's always fun going digging. My first digging experiences were in the middle of nowhere in Outback Australia, and we basically just picture sort of a lot of flat 
nothing digging out in the middle of nowhere in a field and being told to go behind a bush and obviously there are no bits of shrubbery and just kind of having to go probably behind the truck and that's usually the case and having to take bush showers where you sling sort of tube of water over a tree and just hope that nobody else is standing around to look at you <laughs> while you're doing that i've it's had like glastonbury all over it yeah. is it's, yeah it's a lot like glastonbury it's why basically. you need to follow yeah. you yeah. <laughs> to recover from just the trauma. get over the trauma yeah yeah, yeah the posher digs that i've been on usually organized by universities over here there might be a shower block if you're lucky but um, yeah, usually not so much. You do some mentoring work, don't you, to yeah. get more young women into archaeology. Yeah. W- what does that involve? So um, I do it lots of different ways. The main one that I do is go out to schools. I work with both the sort of outreach teams here at the university, but also a charity called the Brilliant Club, which targets schools in low participation areas all over the country areas where kids aren't applying to go to university or if they do are maybe not getting in but they're really bright they're really capable so I teach archaeology programs in schools I try to get students to come along to digs um, and teach them about what's happening there and when I was in Australia I was working a lot in the museum service and doing school outreach programs there um, bringing the artifacts to the kids kids love that stuff they do they They really do things that you've dug up yeah i've got a dinosaur question (laughs) (laughs) how do you feel about jurassic park etc do you think it started sort of kick-started people into being interested in it i don't know it's one of those weird things where i think the paleontologists and the archaeologists have this huge love-hate relationship with things like jurassic park because people do get really interested but then i end up having that sort of angry archaeologist sense of like i don't dig up dinosaurs i dig up people hey dinosaurs are people too (laughs) (laughs) start the movement but yeah i don't i don't know like interest is always good and i think even if things like jurassic park tomb raider maybe are showing the absolute hollywood extreme of things that might not actually happen at least it starts the conversation off and you've got something to talk to people about indiana jones india mm, he's the worst archaeologist ever he never he never he never got his show up well, he punched some Nazis, which I've got to give him, you know, kudos for. However, classic 20th century early male archaeologist didn't do any of the digging himself and got all the locals to do it for him. It's, you know, yeah. but, um, it was a different time. What about just... detectorists? Is that oh, up to yeah. a, a level of interest Ooh, in what you can dig out of the ground? And I think it's really interesting here because obviously there's so much more that you can actually metal detect. Yeah. yeah, and it's great talking to local community groups because there's quite strict laws here in the UK, but people can get really involved with the port antiquity scheme so if you find something you can report it and most of the time you do still get to keep that artifact that you found but you get the archaeologists and the museum people involved and they can tell you what you've got and it gives us lots of really great data to see what's happening in places in the UK where often we maybe don't know to dig but there's actually lots of stuff coming out of the ground um, that we just had no idea about. Because there is still like some some big things that oh, people yeah. are convinced exist somewhere. What what for you would be the dream find? <laughs> oh, the dream find something like Sutton Hoo, another big, well furnished Anglo-Saxon grave. And we actually had something really like that that I get to work on here: the Trumpington Bed Burial, which is a it's a cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, people outside so of Cambridge always find the word Trumpington hilarious. I know, everyone's like, "What is yeah. this?" Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just don't focus on the Trump. Just, yeah, but um, this really 
high status female burial from kind of just down the road so she had a lot of amazing golden garnet jewelry was buried in a bed which is quite unusual um that is weird very weird um and she That's was about a- 18 to 25 so really young as well or so. possibly really old depending on what life expectancy <laughs> exactly. was at that time i suppose yeah. That's a big hole you got to dig to get a bed in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. What's been your most exciting find so far then? Ooh, probably my one that I've actually found an excavator was probably some Anglo-Saxon cremation urns. So before they started burying people like we understand it in humations, a person in a hole in the ground. And they cremated them on a pyre with grave goods and then put them into urns, not dissimilar to what people do today, but cremation wasn't as good um, and then they buried the urns in the ground in cemeteries so we were digging actually a plague pit up in north lincolnshire um, and we thought we'd finished with the big plague cemetery I and mean, we were just double checking that there was no other archaeology underneath seeing that we'd reached what we call natural so just kind of virgin earth nothing else in there and then we found those which i got very excited about and there's a lot of toing and froing because the director of the dig was actually there to look at the post-medieval life of this site he hated kind of the fact that we were finding all this awesome medieval stuff yeah. he's like no we don't have saxons and um, myself and the pottery expert were like we do have saxons he's like Ugh! so that meant that that went on for another year or two with the dig and they found some other stuff and then probably the coolest thing back home in australia the oldest thing that i found is a sort of late pleistocene maybe early holocene so several thousand years old hammerstone um, that was an indigenous artifact which was amazing and I didn't really know what I was digging up it was just a really big rock at the side of a um, fireplace and I went oh maybe this was just a marker and then the um, PhD student who was in charge went stop that's a, that's a hammerstone that's probably about 5,000 years old and I was like okay yeah so <laughs> wow yeah did that so it makes me want to go and start digging stuff up, but yeah. you got to be. You don't. You do. You don't dig, do you? Literally, you, you, it's really painstaking. Yeah, yeah. The first, the first couple of, depending on where you're digging, you do kind of go in with a backhoe and you've got your um, mattock and you're pulling up grass, so it does get, you know, a bit more heave ho in the beginning, but then it turns into quite painstaking work. So to get one skeleton, you're looking at at least a week to get them fully excavated and out of the ground. Wow. One Can person. I ask a stupid question probably not stupid how do you know where to start digging do you just have like a rough idea of shit that went on somewhere and you're like (laughs) yeah here might be a good spot or like Mm. how do you know you're going to find stuff yeah so really good question sometimes you have no clue and a lot of the archaeology at the moment is dictated by commercial archaeology so it's basically someone's going to put a building there um and chances are in britain you will find something so they send the archaeologists in first but you don't necessarily know what you're going to find in other cases you maybe have gone to the portable antiquity scheme had a look at what people are metal detectoring and you go okay there's lots of stuff coming out of this field i think there's a roman villa here let's go in or if you're really really lucky and you've got a very good idea you've had a look at all that sort of stuff seeing what people are reporting and then you go in with ground penetrating radar and um other sorts of equipment to work out what is actually underneath there so you can put in trenches over the top of what you're pretty sure is a um, house or some other sort of structure but sometimes you've just got no clue because there's a building site um, and you have to check that they're not going to find anything that they don't want to beforehand how old does something actually have to be for it to be qualified as as something of interest for art, for archaeology as opposed to i dug up something victorian in my garden yeah or... yeah the victorians actually are quite interesting so basically anything from 50 years ago or more sometimes oh, okay. depending yeah there's people who do what's called contemporary archaeology so pretty much anything within living memory 
Um, further back, lots of people do World War II archaeology. And yeah, I mean, you do tend to find a lot of Victorian stuff. But from back in Australia, that was some really exciting stuff because either we've got really fascinating prehistoric indigenous stuff or you've got the Victorian period. I I can remember being in Australia and someone telling me about a bridge that was really, really, really old and we went to see it and I was like, Jesus, my granddad lives in a house that's older than that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when people ask me, like, why did I come to Europe to sort of do my PhD? And I go, well, uh, mainly because it was Victorian or prehistory and you guys have a little bit more nuance and we have the history you've got the history you've got a lot of different things um so i don't just have to be gluing together blue and white willow pattern wear china yeah or looking at stone tools i can doing lots of other different things Um, a lot of roman stuff in colchester a lot of romans yeah a lot of romans if someone's listening to this and they're interested in getting involved in a dig or anything what would you recommend they do yeah, so if you go onto the current archaeology website, which is an archaeology magazine, they've got a section there which is called Go Digging or Go Dig, and you can actually look up what digs are going on in your local area. So you don't necessarily have to go to a university nearby. You can probably actually go into your backyard, and they've often got community archaeology projects which cost you nothing. They will come and help you interpret what is in your village and your back garden, um, teach you a bit more, teach you how to dig, and then you can work out if you want to maybe do a university course or go and help out at a museum yeah go check that out because there's stuff all over the country um, and often for free is there anything that you want to plug well i'm currently working on some skeletons from basically a couple hundred meters behind us um, over that way um in the newnham (laughs) in the newnham gardens because since we're opening the dorothy garrod building i'm looking at some of the skeletons that she dug up here in the 1930s when they were digging the air raid shelters um and it was all excavated by the students here and i've got a scholarship from newnham because i'm a female archaeologist working in the lab named after dorothy garrod doing anglo-saxon archaeology which is something we're really good at so i guess sort of just say watch this space and also you've just had quite a few big promotions in the department which are long overdue because there's not enough women in the high levels of archaeology since Dorothy Garrod the next one after her was Mary Louise Stig Sorensen who got hers in about 2013-2014 so it was about 70-80 years oh my god um you know there's a lot of us doing really interesting work and so definitely keep an eye out we've got lots of brilliant stuff coming out of this department York Sheffield all the major archaeology departments so Get involved, keep an eye out, and you know if you're angry about it, plug in on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. digging too. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Samantha. That's yeah, been really no interesting. Thanks. You play ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks. That time of the week where we wonder: Is football really coming home? And then we admit that that isn't actually women's sports, but, you know, it's completely saturating all of the coverage. So, again, damn you, patriarchy or something. World Cup fever is upon us. Everyone from the British Army to Ross Kemp has been tweeting incongruous messages of support. You should see the Ross Kemp one, by the way. It is... What is it? It's, like, baffling, terrifying, amusing... All in equal measure. I I recommend it. But yes, all in support for England and the waistcoat of the brand new Queen of Our Hearts, Gareth Southgate. If you're listening on Wednesday, tonight you will no doubt be watching England take on Croatia in our first World Cup semi-final in 28 freaking years. But 
is it really coming home? And what is home anyway? But that's more of a kind of like existential Brexit bullshit, you know. Also, I know you're not all English, but you're not in the World Cup, so sorry, guys. I'm maintaining a quiet pessimism. Uh, we've been here before, and we, in fairness, like we've we've yet to beat like a really really solid good team in this tournament. And I think that Croatia are a pretty solid good team. I, I suppose the thing is, anything could happen in a football match, and I think they're beatable because you know, on one hand, the Lord giveth Croatia with Luka Modric, and on the other, he taketh away with Dejan Lovren. So you know, anything could happen. Anything could happen. But the the good thing is that we are playing well, and the Colombia match was so exciting. I full on luthered at the TV. No, 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 no. But whatever. Whatever happens, whatever the outcome of tonight, let's imagine I'm saying this on Wednesday, I think, you know, they've, they've really done us proud. And, and come on, England, come on. Over in southwest London, Wimbledon is in full swing and sadly Joe Conta did leave early in the tournament as I think Ellie and I sort of predicted when we spoke on last week's podcast about Wimbledon. I don't think we should be getting so excited about it. Obviously, athletes will have their off-season, like they will have some seasons where things just don't click for them and so it's not clicked for her this season but like let's hope let's hope that she can come back from that there's still plenty to get excited about well there is today on monday but who knows what will have happened by wednesday because as previously discussed on last week's podcast you cannot predict what will happen in the women's game and also i i I mean i as i tell you often enough i don't have the ability to time travel, so I definitely can't tell you what will happen. But on court this afternoon, and I think starting in the next 10 minutes, the new favourite, Serena Williams, will play, now goodness me, how do we say this, Evginia Rodina in the round of 16. Can she level with Margaret Court's record of the number of Grand Slam victories? Is this her time? Is this it? So, again, come on, Serena. I really, really hope so. It would be excellent to see. Next week, we will be talking to the very excellent Kate and Helen Richardson-Walsh, who will be talking to us about about hockey, about the Hockey World Cup, about their experiences of, you know, winning multiple medals at the Olympics. It's going to be excellent. You'll enjoy it very much, I'm sure. Um, If you'd like to tweet me in the interim, please do. I am at InspiraGen, and sometimes I talk about things other than Gareth Southgate. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you did this week? This week, I did 1998's A Bug's Life, which is by Pixar for Disney, you know, the best kind. I'd actually never seen it before. I had seen Ants, which was, it was one, it was in one of those situations, this film was, where you sometimes get two films on the same topic, like Volcano and Dante's Peak came out at the same time, and both Truman Capote films came out at really close together and Armageddon and the one with Morgan Freeman Deep came Impact out. yeah yeah. Deep Impact um, so yeah I hadn't seen this before uh, I don't I, I didn't make a, an active choice to see one or the other I didn't go for Ants and actually looking at the cast of this I think if I was going to pick a film like to see because of cast I would have gone for A Bug's Life because it has like a really great comedy cast as in people that are really really good it's got Julia Louis-Dreyfus Phyllis Diller 
Dennis Leary, David Hyde Pierce, John Ratzenberger, Mike Machane, Richard Kind, who is absolutely brilliant in this. A slightly um, problematic one, though. Uh, well, yeah, it's also Kevin Spacey, but let's just move straight on. It also <laughs> features the last appearance by Roddy McDowell, as in Planet of the Apes, Roddy McDowell, who was also star of a um, 1979 film called uh, Scavenger Hunt, which my sister and I were completely obsessed by when we were little because it was the first thing. When we got a video, we got a video reasonably early, actually, because it All fell right. off the back of a lorry. Uh, and it was an old top loader. And we had one VHS video that was mine and my sister's. And we recorded a scavenger hunt off the telly. And we watched it over and over again because it was this, just the shittest. Brilliant shit film. You know, I think I became completely obsessed with brilliant shit films. We watched it over and over again. Um, it, and that had like loads of crazy people. It's got Arnold Schwarzenegger. And it's about a scavenger hunt. And Roddy McDowell plays a I butler. Never heard of it. Uh, so I probably, I'll see if I can rustle you up. <laughs> it's probably completely warped. But anyway, moving on. It's based on the Aesop fable, the ant and the grass. A bug's life, not scavenger hunt. <laughs> <laughs> the ant and the grasshopper. Um, because Andrew Staten said he was listening to the Fable Bay and the grasshoppers like play. Lazy as fuck. Yeah, and they come and they, they they want the stuff that the ants have had. And Andrew Staten said it always curious to him of why the grasshopper just didn't then nick the stuff because that is what would happen in real life. Yeah. Which reminds me a bit of, I saw something brilliant that I've probably told this before that I saw on, um, I think it was like Spring Watch or something where they've made this cake out of like bits of nuts and pulses and they put it outside the back door and they left it there to see what wildlife came along and ate it and like some birds came up and started having a peck and then some squirrels were like whoa what's in there and then they were like had a camera on it and they were going oh look and the birds are holding back a bit now because the squirrels are there and there seemed to be this hierarchy forming of what animals were going to come and eat this and a badger came along and he just lay down on top of the cake (laughs) and then everything else fucked off and he just Just got up and started eating it and he is my life hero, that badger. I love him. Yeah. Anyway, have you guys seen this? I have seen it in the past. I haven't seen it again. But I remember liking it very much when I watched it in the past, although remembering very little about it, apart from a bug being attracted to a light that would kill him and him just going, but it's so beautiful, mm-hmm. which I still use. You know, one of those mm. things that get bugs outside I... chippies. Yeah. Actually, my mate has got one of them. My mate what, has got like a handheld one of those handheld one. Yeah, that he was like going to like zap a fly with in his flat the other week. And my mum showed me something yesterday that she had bought that is like it's a tennis racket, yes. basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you electrocute yeah. flies with but it. But he didn't actually realise that if he touched it, he would also electrocute himself. Yeah. Well, no, and he's, he's not used like, it for nefarious purposes. And he's just he? like, I can't, I, d- I don't know why he touched it, but he did. And he's I like, don't know oh, why I'm banging that against shit. my cock. Yeah. <laughs> just seemed like the right thing to do. Yeah. It was something it was that's quite... new in my house, and it's how I greet everything. It's quite scary. Um, I have seen it many, many years ago. I don't remember a lot about it, to be fair. Did you like it, Hannah? Or do you want to give us a bit of a plot proceed? Um, no, I thought it was all right, actually. I thought it was okay. I think maybe, I mean, I do love JLD, so I think maybe if it wasn't her, I might not have loved it so much. But, yeah, it's really good. It's about uh, an ant colony. Um, that, I mean, that's the basic premise. They are they leave stuff out for the grasshoppers because the grasshoppers, you know, they just, well, they basically just hang around drinking, it appears. They're led by Hopper, who... Let's pretend isn't played by Kevin Spacey. Hang on, Kevin Spacey plays a character that just takes what he wants without asking. I know. It's I, weird. I, it's how crazy. did they? How did Prescient. they come up with that? 
There's a character, he's called Flick, and he's an inventor. And uh, he is kind of the, the Jethro Tull of the ant world. And by that, I mean, like, the inventor, not Jethro the Tull, not the band. Because <laughs> um, actually, what they essentially both invent is a seed drill. And he, he accidentally knocks the offering into the river, and the grasshoppers are really fucked off. They're going to come back, and they're, like, going to wreak havoc with the ants if they don't fix this situation that there's no food for them. So um, Flick goes to the the queen in training, who is called Atta. That is Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Her mum is the... There's an elderly aunt in it, because, of course, her mum has to be elderly, and she's mm. got, like, little lines on her face and stuff. She's going to retire or die, I don't know. They don't, they don't really <laughs> specifically say one way or the other what's going to happen, but Ju, Julia Louis-Dreyfus is going to be the queen aunt. So she, she's sort of... She's having a practice run at being the queen. So she decides... Flick comes up with this plan that he's going to find bigger bugs to scare off the grasshoppers and she basically decides to let him do it mostly because it's just better for him not to be there because he's one of those people that's a pain in the bum anyway he decides to go off and venture into the real world and leave the island that they live on there's some really lovely animation there's a where he rides a dandelion and they it does look really great he stumbles across a circus um, where he finds uh, a collection of insects that are working for a flea circus. And I quite like, well, Mick and I are both carnival fans. I quite like that the, the anything that's set around a circus is fun. That's where he meets a character, uh, David Hyde Pierce, plays a stick insect and immediately steals oh, the Oh, he's amazing. Immediately steals the show. But then almost immediately after that, uh, Jonathan Harris, who's playing a praying mantis, and he automatically then becomes the, the best person in it. He decides to hire them and they go back to the ant colony. There's a bit of a misunderstanding. He thinks they are like a group of warriors when in fact they are a circus troop. And together they have to work to to try and stop the grasshoppers coming and invading and taking all of the stuff. They come up with this plan that they're going to build a, a bird and it's, that's done really lovely. It's, it's, it's the whole explanation about it. Well, you guys won't have seen it recently enough. It's done in three stages, That the, the, the how they lay out the plan for that. Firstly, he comes up with it, then he explains it to someone, and then eventually it ends with it being put to the whole like, of the ant colony, like this plan. Yeah, and then they try to fight off the grasshoppers. It's Yeah, it's good. There's some great characters in it. Richard Kind plays uh, really sort of the younger brother of Kevin Spacey grasshopper, the bad grasshopper, and is brilliant. There's also Mike McShane as a pair of, I don't know what they're supposed to be, twins. Um, they're basically incomprehensible and they constantly fight. So they're like the Gallagher brothers of this <laughs> of this um, theatre. They're very entertaining. It's a really odd idea that it's about basically the answer is the grasshoppers say if the ants work out that if they come at us as a group, they will beat us. It's really odd. I always think that. Like when Disney espouses ideas about unionisation, I think, really? I, I don't. I think that is literally the last theory that Disney would be espousing. espousing. There's a lovely scene where it rains, which not least because, Jesus Christ, will it fucking rain, please? <laughs> Can will you stop it saying the word rain, please? Yeah, Hannah, there's upsetting. these lovely raindrops falling from the sky. Uh, obviously, the plan works because that's how Disney films end. The bad guy ends up being torn to death by hungry chicks. Which, which is possibly House Kevin Spacey yeah. should die. Let's leave it that way. Torn and to death by hungry chicks. <laughs> yes. Fucking hell. 
It's like the man who wanted to set fire to the person in Bambi is like that's pretty brutal, isn't oh, it? Oh, you don't see it happen. You don't see it happen. It's um, up to your imagination. Yeah, I still think that's quite <laughs> but, brutal. But 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 torn apart by hungry chicks is literally the only way Sean Bean has yet to die in a film. Um, <laughs> so I feel like I'd like to pretend that was him. You know, big round of applause. Atter is May Queen. There is a scene at the end in which do you remember Heim, Heimlich? He's like a caterpillar. He's German. He's kind of like this weird combination of like Christopher Biggins and Hair Flick it's it's really <laughs> odd and who hasn't wanted to see yeah. that it's really he's really strange but he's quite entertaining yeah for the most part I liked it I thought it had loads of female characters there's a little there's a the, the kind of the the, the the character that actually gets to be the bravest and the boldest is the tiniest one who's a character called Dot who is played by a very very young Hayden Panettiere who was about I think seven or eight from Byron Bakeries I think yeah um so yeah it was it was okay I, oh, I, okay. I, I it was okay see when you were describing it you seemed very excuse the pun guys but animated um thought, and then you've just gone it's okay it's because I've had a little break haven't I yeah. because you remember we were talking about how I only had 18 left and now Disney have fucking released another one yeah. bastards so yeah having had a week off has worked quite well for me because I didn't sit down to watch it with that feeling of absolute dread that my life was forever going to be Disney films so but why is it only okay and not good because your explanation made it sound like well it, was it isn't good. hilarious okay. it isn't I mean it's just not as good as other things that are Fair better enough. I've seen enough now that it's, it's, it's have you Hannah yeah it's no Moana it's no up it's not as good as Toy Story but it's it's good Solid. Yes. Solid. What score are you giving it? I'm going to give it four. Oh, that's, oh that is quite good. Yeah. Four out of what? Four out of no, five. <laughs> oh, it's so hard here. Four what out of what? Four massively welcome splashy raindrops out of five. That's all from us this week. Thanks as ever for listening. We hope you had a lovely time as much as we had a lovely time. We got to be outside. It was well nice. Next week, we are doing stuff a little bit differently and Jen and Hannah are heading off to the Trump rally because of course they are. So we'll be reporting back from what's going on there. I'm a bridesmaid, so I can't go, but I will be there in spirit, flinging my fuck this shit placard about with abandon because seriously, fuck this shit. We're also chatting to Lauren Livesey from the Bronte Parsonage Museum about Emily Bronte as it is 200 years since her birth and we chat... All of the Brontes, the Charlotte, the Emily, the Anne, big love for Anne, and also the Bramwell. Kate and Helen Richardson-Walsh, that's right, the gold Olympic medal winning hockey peoples, come into the studio to chat to us about, well, hockey, which shouldn't be too much of a surprise after that intro. And Dunleavy will be bracing herself for another Disney film. She had a week off, she's back. I'd say she's raring to go, but it seems wrong to lie to you. If you would like to see us, our faces, in front of your faces, and you really should because they are great nights, then our lineups for forthcoming in conversations and a couple of stand-up shows are looking pretty damn cracking. Louisa Omilan and Janine Garofalo and Sue Pollard on the same bill. I don't think there's ever been such times. It's going to be pretty exciting. That is on August the 13th at The Stand in Edinburgh as part of our Edinburgh Festival run. The day before that, on August the 12th, we've also got a great gig with Aisha Hazarika and Lucy Porter and another name has yet to be announced, which will be cracking. And we've also got a couple of stand-up gigs there in the evenings of the 13th and 14th. 
we are back in London in September, starting with a little trip to the London Podcast Festival, where we are joined by Imriel Morgan of the excellent Wannabe podcast and another guest as yet to be declared slash announced slash booked. So keep an eye on our bit of Sarah's website for more information. And we will, of course, be tweeting about it. You can book tickets from that bit of Sarah's site too. So please visit sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. If you fancy it, please fancy it and you can spare a couple of minutes. It really helps us if you can go to iTunes and rate and review us. Obviously, we'd like you to give us five stars, but you should do you. Always do you and give us five stars. And also, if you haven't subscribed, please subscribe because, again, that is really useful. There is a playlist that we have put together based on Sam's brilliant chat about archaeology. So we want you to dig it. (laughs) Sorry. Um, It is really hot and our brains are melty. So I'm not going to stop wanging on now and just leave you to it. Thanks again for being with us. And if you possibly can in this heat, stay frosty. Standard issue for all women.